I'd like to speak a little bit about beauty, and I hope that uh, in doing so that will maybe seed something, nourish something. Um, in speaking about it, I uh, am going to try and tie some of the some things together that we've already touched on. Um, and also open them out further, so both tie together and open out. Um, I'm not sure that there's such a linear path possible through what I want to uh, communicate. Perhaps there is, but I can't quite see it exactly. And perhaps in the nature of it, what, what I'm trying to do, what we're doing, is shining light on what is already tied together, implicated together, mirroring each other and what already opens out further uh, or suggests a further out opening so that a linear <coughs> motion through the material is not uh, really that possible just by the nature of the material and the way it's connected. So many of us, many of those listening to this, are uh, for many of us, and for many of those listening to this, we would say and feel very much that beauty is important, deeply important to us in our lives, for us in our lives, and therefore also the whole realm and conversation, investigation of aesthetics, and application of aesthetics, also important. For some people, it, it's not, or it really doesn't seem to be that important. And I know... Uh, quite a few people, it's just not something that, uh, beauty is not something that they invest in a lot, that they care about a lot, that they pay a great deal of attention to and support and care for. There is a connection though with eros and soul making. Um, it seems to me that um, those people uh, who for whom beauty is not that important are also people for whom there is um, not uh, a great deal of soul-making movement happening in their lives, uh, not, a, not a great deal of eros. Beauty is a part of an element in soul-making. Beauty is a part of an element in soul-making. If we uh, look to the Pali Canon uh, and see what it says about beauty, uh, as far as I'm aware, we find something that might strike us as, uh, at first, as uh, some people, as a little curious. That the word beauty is only, um, those kinds of word are on, on, uh, words are only found in relation to the mind. And not only that, in relation to the mind, or certain minds, or minds in certain states, if you like. So the fourth jhana, sometimes the Buddha uh, and the texts refer to that as the beautiful. Uh, and that stillness, and the, the radiance of the mind there, and the state therein of equanimity that goes with the fourth jhana. So this is, as the Buddha said, equanimity based on singleness, when there's a kind of closing out of, or, or uh, really deep fading out of the senses, and the mind is just collected into um, uh, stillness and a kind of radiant presence of stillness um, and equanimity there. 
Or the Buddha talks about equanimity based on multiplicity as a slightly as a connected but slightly different state, uh, where one is still open to sounds uh, and sights and smells and touches, but there is um, equanimity in relation to stillness, and and actually there is a degree of fading. So in both of those, whether it's uh, so-called equanimity based on signals or multiplicity, there is a degree of fading. That's important. Fading of the perception of the sen- of, of, of senses and sense objects. We'll come back to that. Uh, so there is this reference to the beautiful, but only really in regard to the fourth jhana and beyond, or to a Buddha's mind or an Arahant's mind, free of defilements, pure and therefore beautiful, or sometimes in some kind of ways to um, the the body of the Buddha, the physical body of the Buddha, which is full of the 32, I think it's 32 marks of a great man. It has to do with Indian mythology, etc. And that's regarded as beautiful. With uh, respect to the world, uh, the world that we live in, and uh, the earth and the senses, and what comes to us through the senses, the word beautiful and beauty is, is not used. Um, so beauty is in or of the mind and everything else is just talked about in terms of rather than beauty is what is pleasing to the senses or sense pleasures and this has all kinds of implications that that, bifurcation of language there and and, and f- more than that, even because the Buddha talked about in the Pali Canon, sense pleasures being like a snake's mouth, or a pit of burning coals, or a torch of um, hay that one is carrying um, into an on on uh, into a headwind, etc. All these images of danger and pain associated with what is pleasing to the senses. And the whole Pali Canon, as we've touched on before, has this movement, this thrust, towards transcending the world of the senses, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, to the unfabricated, um, to the fading of sense experience in all six senses, including the mind, um, and, to, and through that to the ending of rebirth, an end of the uh, being reborn in the world of senses, or if you like, the world of the senses and sense experiences being reborn. Uh, so there is clearly a very um, negative connotation, if you like, given to sense experience and, and the sense experience in the world. It's not a realm of beauty. It's not where we look to for beauty. <clears throat> so that's um, quite interesting, and it has a legacy which I think we are still not uh, clearly uh, investigating, aware of, open to, um, sensibly um, confronting, questioning, etc. If, uh, bearing that in mind and what's there in the Pali Canon, if we, though, look at what is our um, phenomenal experience of beauty, what is our actual experience of beauty? So we have, as human beings, at least most people have, at times, experiences of beauty. Uh, and we can say that's, I would say, and most people would say, it's more than just something being pleasant in the senses, and um, more than sense pleasure uh, leading to a kind of craving. So most people would say, it, when I experience beauty, it's something different than it's just a pleasure in the senses that the, the, the being, the mind, or the body craves for. 
something in the experience of beauty, if we're investigating what it is as an experience, that whole constellation, something touches us. So it's more than craving. Something is touched um, in, in the being. And, but by touched, I also mean more than an obvious emotion. So an obvious emotion, um, grief or compassion or um, some kind of passion or something, can be for something or other, um, may be uh, touched and triggered in, in the um, experience of beauty. But we are touched um, in the experience of beauty um, in our being, in ways that go beyond or include more than what are obvious emotions. And come back to that. So we have a friend, um, <clears throat> a Buddhist friend, and um, uh, wrote a piece recently about um, beauty, and particularly about aesthetics, really, and his approach to aesthetics. And so he was... Um, uh, actually saying that beauty, briefly, he said beauty um, was something that comes out of mindful experience, uh, or mindfulness of experience, so that there isn't the craving, there isn't the tanha. And through mindful experience, for instance, on retreat, the world appears radiant. The things of the world appear radiant. And that radiance is, is a, a, a perception and experience of beauty. Uh, and he says more, and we'll come back. Come, we'll go on. But just to pause there with this this idea of radiance or this experience of radiance. Notice that that experience of radiance, and some of you will know this, of course, from being on retreat and being silent, being mindful, as the mindfulness kind of ratchets up, ratchets up its power. Um, there is a radiance in experience. You go outside, the grass, the sky, the cup, the tea, the steaming tea from the cup, etc. Has this quality of radiance that we can feel. Uh, it's a universal quality. So radiance seems to, in that state, in a state of like heightened mindfulness, let's call it, the radiance per, uh, pervades everything. Everything seems to be radiant. It's a universal. It's not in and of so much particularities. The radiance of this is not particularly different than the radiance of that. So there's a there's something universal there. Just wanting to note that. A further thing to inquire into with this radiance is what what is it and what do you mean? What is meant by radiance? It's certainly not in our friend's um, way of thinking or conceiving of this. It's not a kind of luminosity, and certainly not a numinosity attributed to the object um, or or kind of flowing through it from beyond in, in some way. I think what it actually is, is just an experience of vividness, a vividness of perception, um, of anything that comes um, into the realm of perception, anything that comes into the realm of sense experience. Why? Because with mindfulness there's less distraction, the mind can therefore, um, it doesn't dissipate so much energy, it accumulates energy, it becomes brighter, more alert, more present. Um, with that, is if you like, the, the grime is wiped off the windshields, so, uh, windscreen, so to speak. Um, and so there is a vividness, there's a brightness, a radiance of perception, uh, to perception of things. 
So this radiance that's perceived there and perceived as, as enjoyable, etc., um, and perhaps some people would call it beautiful, is just, again, really a property of the mind or awareness in, in certain states. Some people even say it's a brain property. Um, so I have some questions about that experience of radiance and uh, what's involved there. But uh, our friend goes on to talk about the sublime, which we've talked about before, earlier on this retreat, and this whole romantic uh, notion of the sublime, meaning what is um, beautiful, if you like, uh, in terms of pleasing sense experience, but not just beautiful, also in a way terrifying, dwarfing to the sense of the self, the sense of the fragile um, uh, human body and existence in a vastness that could swallow it up, dwarf it, erase it easily. So Turner's uh, fantasy of being strapped to the mast of a ship in a storm. So the, the colours and the um, vividness of the sense experience and also that um, hugeness and danger and um, kind of terrifying uh, uh, confrontational openness to, to nature. So in this experience of sublime, which for, for our friend is very important in his uh, notion of aesthetics, and especially Buddhist aesthetics, um, we have something transcends the self here. There's a, there is a kind of transcendence, but what transcends the self is really just um, only impermanence. Um, tragedy. Uh, it's uh, seeing contingency and uh, dependency um, of um, things de- being dependent on other things. So there's a kind of emptiness there, but implicit in the understanding of emptiness is that it's tragic, that it uh, really means impermanence, and just means these real things are dependent on other real things. Material things are dependent on other material things. Um, what transcends the self is, if you like, the existential predicament of the self that surrounds it, that is inevitably waiting for it. Our um, unavoidable, in this view, existential predicament of inevitably moving towards non-existence. So there's a tra- there's a kind of transcending uh, there of the self. And... In his view, also, art is regarded as transcendent, but in a slightly different way, because it, art cannot, uh, we can't quite fully say what uh, this piece of art or that piece of art means. And our friend says more, he says, I w- uh, this makes me uneasy, I feel uncomfortable, I want to be told, what does this painting that I'm looking at, what does this sculpture I'm, I'm looking at, what does it mean, I want to be told what it means, and I want it to be told, he says, I want to be told how to feel about it. And he connects this with um, Keats's, the poet John Keats's notion of negative capability, which uh, in Keats's words is a state of uncertainty or doubt uh, without any irritable reaching out after facts or reason. Uh, This is negative capability. And so our friend um, takes that to mean, really, without any reaching out um, beyond, away from a a state of uncertainty and a state of doubt. Um, Except... Um, certainty and non-doubt about the existential predicament. 
So here, and what's important to our friend um, is um, uh, a kind of the poignancy, the, the poignancy um, of the the tragedy of our existence and the tragedy of impermanence, of our impermanence, of everything's impermanence. And so, making art in a Buddhist context needs to be about this, because this is what the Dharma is about. It's about opening to this, and art is only really about that. Um, there isn't then the possibility of expanding out of an art that actually can expand beyond being about that poignancy and tragedy of impermanence. So this is all fine and legitimate. Of course, everyone's uh, allowed to have whatever view and approach to aesthetics they would like. Um, But just from our point of view, what we're trying to open on this retreat and um, as ways of practicing and ways of conceiving, notice a couple of things. One is um, that there is a limited and a singular view of life here. Life is taken axiomatically, dogmatically, um, to be uh, really um, about or to involve this absolutely real existential predicament, moving to non-existence, the tragedy of impermanence, etc. So there's a singular view of life. This is how life is. Um, and it's a, 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 a limited view and a limiting view. It's limited to that singular view. And also of art, the view of art. Life, this is what life is. And this, therefore, is what um, art, at least Buddhist art, should be. Uh, notice also that in this um, approach <coughs> of our friend that any individual or anything is mostly or only interesting um, to us or for the art in its, um, or at least as, for, as far as the art goes, in, in, is only interesting in, in the fact of its um, movement towards obliteration, towards extinction, towards erasure in the uh, universal facticity of impermanence. Yeah. So the thing itself is, is uh, sure, it's different from that thing, we can see that, but that's not so interesting in itself. The individual individuality has no real depth to it. it it's only interesting insofar as this thing is, has this tragic impermanence that all things share. All things and all selves and all individuals. So I said, all that's um, fine and uh, totally allowed, no, no problem. But from our point of view, there it is both limited and limiting. Um, or from the point of view of what we're trying to unfold on, on this retreat and other retreats <coughs> and other teachings. If I were to... Uh, explore or flesh out a little bit or articulate what's involved um, in the experience of beauty, what seems, what are the facets or um, aspects involved in the experience of beauty, again from a phenomenological point of view almost, what does it include? I'd point out a few things. So one is that in the experience of beauty we're not just enjoying the beauty of the object whether that's an object of the senses in nature or um, art or whatever it is. We're also, um, what's involved in the sense and the experience of beauty is also that we are enjoying 
our, so to speak, our sensitivity or subtlety of awareness or attention with respect to that object that is beautiful. We actually enjoy the way that we are engaging with it. Do you see? We enjoy our attunement. We enjoy the arousal of being, of consciousness, of uh, what, what senses, mind, heart, that, that, is, that is there in relationship. Uh, the aliveness that's there for us, in us, through us. We enjoy the state of intimacy and the relationship of intimacy. We enjoy the connecting, connection. So all this, uh, and you can recognize some of this language that that we've been using, and all this means also, if you like, that we, in an experience of beauty, we we are enjoying our eros, our erotic connection, our experience of the erotic, of our eros, of the erotic connection with the object. And part of the experience of beauty, um, I would say, whether we're fully conscious of it or not, involves seeing the beauty of our eros, of our response. You understand? I might not have realized it fully consciously, but when I have a sense of beauty, I'm also appreciating and seeing the beauty of, let's say, our eros, my eros. So that's one aspect uh, to point out. Um, another and related is that, and this is hard to articulate, or at least I'm finding it hard to articulate. If you pay attention when you're experiencing beauty, sometimes there's a sense of something related to what I just said, something almost within us resonating. Um, There's a kind of resonance with whatever we're perceiving as beautiful. Um, There's a, so to speak, a chiming or an echoing uh, between the object and the subject. Or some kind of, it feels as if maybe perhaps something is um, being echoed there um, in the object, or we are echoing the object, or the object is mirroring something in us, or we are, something in us is mirroring it. Um, a resonance, a chiming, an echoing, a, a mirroring of something, so to speak, within us with the object. Now, this isn't uh, a state of merging in oneness and union. There is still this otherness there that's necessary to eros that we've talked about. The otherness is there. The polarity is there. The uh, um, the ness is there. Connected, but to maybe uh, maybe there's a sense of participating in something i think there is in a deep sense of beauty we feel that we are participating in something deeply but what is it that we're participating in what is the object of beauty what is the um, beautiful thing Again, whether it's senses, a sense object, or a mental object, or a, um, an, uh, an image, or an art, a piece of art, or whatever it is, a piece of music. What is that object uh, with which we are resonating, in which we are participating, in which there is a participation together with? That object itself, I would say, is magnified in that erotic connection, in the perception of beauty, the object is magnified, amplified, let's say. Um, It's widened, 
so to speak. So that if you listen to music, if you listen to wordless music, and, and there's really a perception of beauty, it is not just bare sound. It is not just bare sound. I would say it's not even just pleasant bare sound. Um, it's something, the object is, in, in the um, experience of beauty, the object of, that we find beautiful is, is somehow magnified, amplified, widened and deepened. What does this mean? What does it mean? How is it uh, thus widened and deepened? Thirdly, and as actually I've just said, it's a, an experience of beauty is is more than is not only an experience of um, pleasant sensual contact or pleasant sense experience. That is not an experience of in in the way that we're talking about uh, of, uh, that qualifies as beautiful. Nor I would say um, is it just a matter of a pleasing arrangement of um, visual elements or um, uh, sonic elements. You think, what is it about a Rothko abstract painting? Yes, um, certainly there's pleasing proportions and arrangements of colors and, and shades of color on a canvas. Or de Kooning, William de Kooning, and kind of abstract, uh, another abstract painter. Um, or in wordless music, yes, of course, there's a temporal uh, arrangement of different timbres and sounds, etc., but it's not, the experience of beauty is more than just being um, uh, pleased at the arrangement of pleasant sense experiences. And I would go further and say that, 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 that to me it's not that we can, uh, like our friend said actually, I would agree, that, that um, it's not that we can reduce beauty to it just means this or that. This painting means this. This piece of music means this, X or Y. When we reduce um, uh, art or uh, sense experience in nature or whatever to it means this, to meaning, um, we, there's a kind of monovalency, singularity of meaning, um, or even if it has one or two meanings, um, it, we, we've then reduced it, we've limited it. And that's different to the notion of um, meaningfulness. Uh, again, it's maybe not the best word, but there's, there's an openness to that. It can include specific meanings, but there's something more in the experience of meaningfulness. And that, I would say, is more characteristic an experience of beauty. It's not a reduction into um, a kind of monovalence. It means X or Y. Nor is it, and as I alluded to before, that... Um, Beauty, the experience of beauty, um, is confined to an emotional experience. Or certainly not that, though it may include, um, that, that whatever is beautiful triggers um, our emotions or emotions associated um, or referring to um, my personal narratives, uh, uh, stuff that's happened in my life, or human, human narratives in general. It may include all that, but I would say there's something more uh, that it needs to be open. So, experiences of beauty, if I'm just exploring the phenomenal um, experiences of beauty, um, 
<clears throat> that we have as human beings. I would say, what, partly what characterizes them is that this sense of more, of beyond, of unfathomability, of inexhaustibility. Um, uh, as we've just said, also, also of meaningfulness. And uh, also, as I said before, there's an involvement in the experience of beauty of, um, as well as the object, also of the self, and, again, maybe not so obvious, but of the world. So our, our sense of the world is transformed when there's, an experience, when there's a deep experience of beauty of anything. It affects our sense of the world. Um, and, and also um, our eros is involved. So again, we get that um, <clears throat> uh, fourfold sort of, I don't know what to call it, uh, constellation that's always involved in any perception. Self, world, other, and desire, in this case, eros. And the involvement of all of those um, is, is, as we've already said, is, is involved in a sense of beauty. So, can you see, can you hear how... Um, the characteristics, or, or some of the characteristics of the experience of beauty, are echo, mirror, are similar to um, many of the characteristics of imaginal experience. There's some relationship with our experience of beauty and our and our experience of the imaginal. And I sh- shouldn't need to say this at this point in the retreat, but I, I will say it. But um, by imaginal, we do not just mean so-called intrapsychic the images that come to me when my eyes are shut and uh, out of contact with the world of the senses. So, uh, that's that's so crucial. Um, uh, the imaginal is really, it's it involves, again, a set of perspectives, of perceptions, ways of looking. Um, it involves soul-making beauty, and it can be right there in my perception of this uh, this room right now, of the ground beneath me, of my own hands, of you as I'm looking at you, of this tree. Our perception of the world can be imaginal. Um, so there's a, there's a mirroring, an echoing, a similarity, a correspondence in, between the characteristics of the experience of beauty and the characteristics of imaginal experience. And so much so that I would, I would wonder, does beauty actually imply, our experience of beauty implies that there is soul-making happening in our sense. It implies already some Im- opening up of the imaginal with respect to this piece of art, with respect to this piece of music, with respect to this flower that I'm looking at, with respect to whatever it is. So it involves then... Um, depths, dimensionality. That's part of the experience of beauty, I would say. Uh, and they, these are open-ended. There's an open, uh, an openness of depth, an unfathomability. Um, the dimensionalities that might open are, um, well, are without limit, without um, preordained limits. Um, so, again, referring back to our friend, the the um, and his kind of uh, view of aesthetics or, or statement of aesthetics, um, 
there is a more there um, in this awareness of the sublime. Uh, there is a kind of beyond there in the awareness of the sublime, uh, of, of the sublime that's part of the whole aesthetic um, sensibility and project, as we uh, <coughs> talked about the sublime in, in the previous talks. Um, and there is a meaning there. So the art has this kind of singularity of meaning it means, it refers back to it points towards always this poignancy tragedy of the impermanence but as I said, there's, there's um, relative to what we're trying to open up here, it's, it's a limited um, a, a perspective um, on both life and art and it's limiting there's a monovalency, it has one meaning and that's the meaning is the poignancy of the tragedy of the impermanence um, the fantasy, the image, the soul-making is only in that um, the, those kinds of perceptions, those kind of perspectives, and in that um, artistic, uh, in, in those artistic endeavors that would come out of that and be restricted to that. The fantasy, the image, the soul-making is only um, with respect to that tragedy, etc. is limited by that. The transcendence is also limited. It's um, monovalent, or if you like, bivalent. We said there's two kinds of transcendence that I might consider the transcend, uh, transcendence of the art and the transcendence of, of the sublime transcending the self. But it's just that, it's two tra- kinds of transcendence. It's bivalent only, and only refers to um, the uncertainty in regard to the art and the, uh, if you like, um, tragedy uh, with regard to persons and things. Uh, my friend and I uh, have quite different, uh, I, I would say, um, well, it might sound quite similar at first, quite different views, conceptions, interpretations of emptiness. And this is part of what's at the root of the difference then in approach to well, approach to life, practice, beauty, aesthetics, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so for my friend, the um, the teachings of emptiness and the fact, if you like, of emptiness are actually tied in to a fantasy um, of tragedy uh, and opening to tragedy, the tragedy of impermanence and the fact of just uncertainty, existential uncertainty. Um, uh, there also, they, his understanding of emptiness implies dukkha, because there is dukkha because things are empty, and there is tragedy because things are empty. This is um, quite the opposite of most of the Buddhist tradition, where emptiness um, it, it implies uh, and uh, leads, if you like, our, our, our confrontation with it, our exploration of it, leads to freedom. It implies freedom. Knowing the emptiness of things, opening to the, empty, of the emptiness of things, brings freedom. And not, not tragedy, not dukkha, quite the opposite. It's a, it's a remedy for dukkha. Uh, and uh, the teachings of contingency or dependency, everything being kind of interconnected, not having one basis uh, or being based in itself, so to speak, um, are really, in those other sets of teachings, um, really just 
used to say, don't get excited about any one thing, because any one thing relies on everything else, is connected with everything else, depends in some way on everything else. So don't get excited about any one thing. So the whole um, premise and tenor and directionality of the teachings is really quite different than certainly the way I would present it or I would view as being the basis for our work here and these kind of teachings. In our friend's presentation, there is um, uh, it, there is not this inclusion of the uh, dependency of things on the way of looking. And there is not the allowing of different ways of looking because things are empty. There is not the um, allowing of a flexibility of ways of looking. And, the, and there is not the practice of the flexibility of the ways of looking. There is, in fact, just one way of looking, which is geared towards seeing this impermanence and tragedy, etc. At least one kind of sanctioned way of looking. Uh, rather, in, in how I would understand it and how I've taught it in uh, in, in how I w- w- would always teach it, um, emptiness means um, the emptiness of something means it's not um, independent of the way of looking. There is no independent reality, independent of the conception and way of looking at any time. So rather than emptiness, uh, or rather and rather than emptiness being uh, just kind of tied in with impermanence and kind of equally tragic, um, if you like. Um, The emptiness of things, or the realization of the deep emptiness of things, um, means understanding that things are, all things, are neither permanent nor impermanent. Neither impermanent nor permanent. They are beyond the categories of impermanent and permanent. Neither Impermanence nor permanence are ultimate truth. So the Mahayana teachings um, in particular are full of these these kinds of um, uh, emphases and uh, point this out repeatedly. So for example in the Prajma, Prajna Paramita Sutras, sutras um, for, so many quotes are possible here. Uh, for example, form, feelings, Vedana, perception, Perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are not permanent or impermanent, are neither permanent nor impermanent. Uh, and in another Prajna, Prajnaparamita Sutra, um, the perfection of wisdom does not describe any phenomenon as permanent or impermanent. Um, so to keep harping on about the impermanence and to rest only in the view of impermanence is not a perfection of wisdom. It's a limit. It's a it's a certain relative wisdom that needs to be transcended, deepened, gone beyond. Nagarjuna, who is, if you like, the um, <coughs> the paragon teacher of emptiness in the Buddhist tradition, um, second really only after the Buddha, um, also wrote in some of his main texts, um, says, in a relative sense, everything is impermanent. But in the absolute sense, nothing is permanent or impermanent. And again, I mean, so many of these uh, things I could quote, but he, he's, he writes again, there is no origination, there is no destruction. The customary usage of origination and destruction, and otherwise impermanence, has, however, been expounded by the Buddhas for practical purposes. It's a stepping stone teaching. 
So to limit our Dharma understanding, our exploration, our perspective of life, and also our um, approach to aesthetics and art and um, sense experience and the rest of it, just limited by a limited understanding of impermanence and limited um, exploration of emptiness, well, it, it limits. <clears throat> so, how might we um, open up the possibilities um, for beauty and also then for uh, our, our aesthetics and our, our practice? Um, and also in that open up soul making because they're, connect- they're connected, beauty and soul making. Um, we, if we refer back to our friend, and or in general, perhaps we need to explore more deeply um, the nature of objects, of things, of life. If we feel like we've, um, we say, oh, life is uncertain, life is this or that, it's huge, etc., but we've actually nailed it down nailed um, what it is and given that a reality what is it? Well it's this tragic impermanence and this um, hugeness that might dwarf me or erase me or extinguish me and my existence um, at any moment the fragility of that you say that's what life is um, we need to perhaps explore more deeply the nature of objects, things and life um, to open up the possibilities for beauty for aesthetics and for soul making. Um, and also, we need to open up and explore more and deeper if there are, for instance, this, there is this view of life, this feeling, these feelings, these emotions in regard to selves and things. This, what my friend would call the unbearably poignant feelings, emotions, emotions of unbearable poignancy. Um, seeing this fragility, impermanence um, of things, seeing this sublime. Um, going deeper into those feelings, not um, um, just stopping there with the, the first sense of them and then perhaps uh, intellectually formulating them or whatever, but not stopping, really feeling into them, certainly not avoiding or brushing them away or brushing them over, but going deeper into them, explore them, open to them. Do you have the skill to do that? Go deeper into these feelings, care for them, see how that actually transforms the feelings themselves, not by avoiding them, not by brushing them over or painting them pink or whatever, the deeper exploration, don't arrest that exploration of what you're feeling if it's painful, that unbearable poignancy. Um, deeper exploration transforms the feelings because everything is dependent. The transformation of the heart transforms then the self-sense and the sense and the perspectives and then the very sense and experience of things and of life just through going deeper and exploring more and caring more and being more careful with the feelings. So both poles, both the um, object, object pole, so to speak, and the subject pole of, of experience need more exploration in order to open out the possibilities for beauty and aesthetics and also soul-making. Both poles, subject, subjective and so-called objective. Beauty is in between. Beauty is um, not wholly within, nor is it wholly without. 
beauty is in relationship. We say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's not just in the eye. It's in, in relationship. In mutual dependence of subject and object. Um, just like image is. The image is not just there, nor is it not just here. Image in the sense that we're using it, imaginal image. And just like soul is. What we mean by soul is in between, is in the between, it's in the relationship. And actually, just like existence is, and life is, and being is, and world is, and the senses are, there's unavoidably an inextricable link between um, the subjective and the objective. They are inseparable, subject and object, the poles here. There's a mutual involvement. Uh, a mutual dependency of object and subject, a dialogue, a conversation, a mutual participation. And the same with the soul and the world. So if we're stuck, if, or rather in order to open up further our sense of beauty, um, the both poles, the subject and unobjective need working with. We can explore fruitfully both poles and where they are limited, where they are less pliable. So in the pole of the object, um, to see that it's empty in, in the sense that it doesn't exist independent, it doesn't, independently of the way of looking, it doesn't have an inherent existence. It's empty in all kinds of ways, in fact. We're not reducing it to a um, scientific materialist or reductionist materialist view. Because then I've limited the object. I've um, decided that it, that it is this. And that kind of reductionist materialist, materialist view of things or objects or sense experience, well, it doesn't hold water if I investigate it. If I limit um, my view of objects things to a one-dimensionality, then I, 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 it's almost like I'm not investigating them properly. I'm limiting um, what I can see there, what I can sense there. So this one-dimensionality needs to open up to the dimensionality, to, to uh, the experience of dimensionality of in-sense objects. And also, as I said, the subjective pole, the, the, the pole of my experience, you know, taking care of the heart, the emotions. <clears throat> Catherine's talking about, um, was talking about their senses connecting to the heart. An experience and a conception of the senses as connected with the heart. This will also support the sense of beauty and opening and deepening of beauty. Well, we can also say that in, in um, as we touched on already in the retreat, in experiencing, in coming into sense experience with something, that the whole energy body is involved. So I'm taking care of the subjective pole by bringing the whole energy body into contact with. It's not just my eyes that see. What is it to look uh, with my whole energy body as well as my eyes? What is it to know with my whole energy body as well as what other senses? So this whole um, energy body is included in the knowing, is epistemically and epistemologically included. We're not shrinking down and dismissing other ways of knowing. 
there is not an epistemicide or epistemic cleansing that has been so rampant in, uh, well, in Western society um, in the last few hundred years. This knowing and involve, or rather involving the whole energy body and the whole um, image of the body in the knowing, in the sense experiencing, in the looking or whatever it is, is also a way, as we've touched on, um, uh, that supports um, eros to arise in the sense contact. How do I move from craving to eros? One of the ways is getting the whole energy body involved. Um, so that the imaginal and the soul-making can open up. And then we've said before, again, talking about how to open up our possibilities for beauty, deepen, <clears throat> and the possibility then for aesthetics. We need to allow the fertility of the imagine. We need to allow psyche, and we need to allow logos to expand. And we need to allow the eros to flow through and in our relationship with sense experience or art or whatever it is. So that um, through this allowing the eros psychologos dynamic can, can expand, can enrich and widen, deepen, etc. And there is the perception eventually of dimensionality and divinity, both of object and of subject, as we've touched on. We need to allow ways of looking that are legitimized because of the emptiness of things. Allow this diversity and flexibility, plasticity of ways of looking. <clears throat> All of that. Including, um, for instance, a deliberately sensing this sensation, or this Vedana, or this um, perception of an object in any and each of the six senses, as divine, deliberately sensing this as divine, so this is a deliberate practice, or as from the divine, uh, or deliberately sensing and viewing a way of looking that deliberately senses and experiences and perceives or conceives this knowing, this awareness of this thing right now, in this moment, this knowing itself as divine, or as from the divine, or that in that knowing, I am, you are participating in divine knowing. That kind of um, deliberate divinization of, uh, if you like, the experience of, of the object or of the self or of the eros or of the world, that deliberate divinization may um, be, uh, the capacity to do that may be developed from that experience just spontaneously arising um, through similar perceptual shifts where where any of those aspects, any or all of those aspects, self, other world, or eros, appear to us as divine. We have that sense through <coughs> practice, through soul-making practice. Or it can come through or be supported through emptiness practices, ways of looking, for instance, um, seeing this... Um, object or this Vedana or this sensation or this knowing, the awareness itself as anatta, not self and that loosening of the self-appropriation this is my knowing, I am knowing, I am the one who is aware or whatever, this is my awareness or this is my um, hand or whatever I'm looking at or whatever it is the loosening of that identification and self-appropriation with regard to experience and the aggregates um, 
so-called five aggregates, this loosening also, because of the loosening, it opens the possibilities. Then it's much easier to see them, for instance, as divine. Not mine, they're divine. But they are supported in different ways through, through practice. I'm talking about how to open possibilities for beauty, possibilities for aesthetic conception, possibilities for soul-making. And oftentimes, again, it's the logos that limits our sense of beauty, uh, the range of beauty that we can uh, experience, uh, limits our aesthetics and limits our soul-making. So, for example, to have just a, a, a body of teaching that kind of either directly or indirectly ends up saying there is no beauty to the world and in the senses. It's all just craving at sense pleasure. Um, and then because of that implicit teaching or explicit teaching, one moves into a mode of relating that avoids or dismisses or denigrates um, sense experience and the, and the world. The world meaning the world of sense experience. And there's the movement to transcend that, as we've talked about. Or we just get the more m- modern kind of version, the Western version. Enjoy, but don't get attached does that work exactly? And not really a, a very um, uh, well-fleshed-out teaching or something that we can have a lot of integrity with. The relation with the senses, the relationship with the senses um, is implicit um, in and directed by a whole metaphysics um, uh, that comes with teaching. The relationship that we have with the senses and that we try and pursue with the senses is implicit in and directed by the whole metaphysics um, of uh, that comes with whatever teaching we're exposed to and following. There's um, a logos of what is real and what's not real and how we can know and what the world is and all that. And there's a fantasy wrapped up in that. And... Also, that's completely wrapped up with the conception, the fantasy of the path, and what awakening is, and how that relates to the world and the world of the senses. So someone saying, like our friend, Buddhist art is about impermanent, impermanence, tragedy, and, and the sublime. Why? Because that's what is believed to be real. These are real things. Life really is like that. These are real. So again, there's a metaphysics involved that ends up determining the relationship with the senses, with art, with beauty. What is it? What would it be not to limit art, not to limit beauty and, and the possibilities of beauty, not to limit the possibilities of soul-making? That they are actually open-ended, as we've discussed, potentially infinite in their directions. So, notions and fantasies about reality and the relationship with reality, including some kind of beyond, are, I think, tied up in the aesthetic sense. We talk about um, physicists and mathematicians um, talk about uh, a beautiful theory or a beautiful equation. And part of that sense of beauty is not just um, the sort of elegance or 
um, simplicity um, of the equation or the theory. It's also that there's something, um, there's a dimension there. It, it reaches to a dimension of what isn't yet known, what is not obvious. And in another way, that, that's, that's a way of saying depths, isn't it? The deep is what is not immediately apparent, what is not obvious, and it connects the the theories um, that are beautiful will connect the apparently apparently unconnected, and they penetrate open to what's beyond current understanding to another level. So there's metaphysics in physics. There's this movement, and that's part of the whole um, perception of beauty and the whole sense of beauty and the aesthetic sense. Now, when it comes to practices, we also might um, <clears throat> be engaging practices that may limit um, the experience of beauty and the experience of soul-making. <coughs> A bare attention to sense experience, to um, art, or to <coughs> something in nature. Bare attention will not bring a sense of beauty by itself will not bring a sense of beauty or soul-making. It might bring a sense of vividness and that radiance. If it does bring a sense of beauty, um, I would say at that point it's no longer bare attention. We actually haven't realized that it's not actually bare attention. It doesn't bring a sense of beauty and soul-making because it doesn't allow other depths and dimensions and the, and the imaginal to open up in relation to, to uh, what is perceived and what is sensed. <clears throat> or, for instance, Mahasi practice, where there's this very focused, narrowly focused, very um, uh, kind of sharp attention to, um, kind of microscopic attention to the details of experience. And what comes down is these sort of moments of sensation, moments of Vedana, moments of perception of heat, cold, uh, color, what, whatever it is. And there's a kind of atomism there, which we've touched on in previous retreats. Um, and then that, this um, uh, atomic seeing, if you like, this deconstruction or reduction of the world to atomic moments of experience and elements there, this is regarded as real. And being regarded as real in the Logos, it creates a limit. This is, this is the limit. It's, it's, this is because this is real. We've reached the sort of base of what reality is. Reality is made up of these extremely fine, uh, fine grains of sand of experience, if you like. But then because there's a limit there, and that's taken as reality, there isn't this unfathomability, this inexhaustibility, this mystery to things, to experience, to perception, to sense experience. There is, in that teaching, um, a beyond-sense experience, a transcendent, the unfabricated, but it's not in and through. The beyond there is not in and through. It's away from experience. It's with the erasure, um, the fading, the cessation of experience. Or, uh, as a third example of uh, practices that might limit sense of the opening, uh, the opening of the senses of beauty and soul making, a practice where one just sort of receives experience and abides, rests in a kind of openness of awareness. This will, as it progresses and um, deepens that practice, will lead to a sense of one taste. Everything, um, all experience has one taste, probably the taste of awareness or love, um, just has one taste, insubstantial, 
it might be infinite spatially because the awareness opens up as if the awareness is vast. But in terms of dimensions, it just reaches that one dimension, this one taste of everything is awareness or everything is love or whatever it is. But the dimensionality doesn't open up um, either beyond that or more than that or wider than that. There is not the fertility of soul perception. So, I would say, why limit? Can we not limit um, beauty, art, soul-making? I would would actually say, just like Eros and just like soul, beauty also will always be larger than however we define it. It will not be captured in any definition. Why? It's part of the mystery of being. Beauty and our capacity for beauty and our sensitivity to beauty and the existence of beauty is one of the mysteries of being. We will never exhaust it in experience. We will never exhaust it in our creation of it. We'll never come to the end of the possibilities of creating beauty or experiencing beauty. And our whatever definitions or ideas of beauty will never completely exhaust what beauty is. We'll never arrive at a final um, comprehension, captivated it. Just like Eros, just like Saul. And also, just like divinity, the divine. Some people, that word divinity, or the divine, or God, it's like, what on earth do you mean? Or they or they just assume you mean this, what I've heard, a uh, guy sitting on a cloud, you know, m- meeting out judgment uh, to people with a long beard, or whatever, or, or, or what, whatever. And sometimes people, people don't find it very perplexing. What do you mean when you say that? <clears throat> God, or divinity, or whatever. Um, so, maybe... What might help for some people to open to that word, if if one is curious and and um, has enough looseness and flexibility uh, and permission in in the soul to allow that word or explore what that might mean, maybe we can um, open up that relation if it uh, if it would serve um, the relationship to the word divinity by analogy to beauty. There's something analogous here. So if someone said, which people of course do say, um, quite commonly these days, <coughs> um, there is no divinity, there is no God, there is no, um, well sometimes people say, there's no Buddha nature, there is no um, metaphysical dimensions, etc., none of that. Um, at, or they would say, um, and if there is, it's irrelevant. Um, but in a way, that would be similar to saying, if I just pursue this analogy a little bit, similar to saying, what if someone said, um, so people can say that, of course, but what if someone said, um, there is no beauty, not there is no divinity, but there is no beauty in the world anywhere. Um, there is no beauty uh, in the world, there is no beauty anywhere. And anyway, even if there is, it's not important, it's irrelevant. Uh, of course, a person can say that, and they can believe it, and they can that might be their own experience. There is no beauty in the world anywhere, and even if there is, it's not important, it's irrelevant. Um, but surely it's too much to generalize that uh, for others. 
and just claim that everyone who perceives beauty or who for whom beauty is important is just deluded or deluding themselves or something like that so fine if you want to exp- if you if a person wants to um has that experience and wants you know but can't generalize that for others <clears throat> divine as i am using the term or divinity as i it refers to experience just like beauty it refers to experience and the way i am using um, divinity has again parallels to beauty an analogy to to our use of what I mean by beauty, because we cannot claim just uh, that divinity, or we're not claiming, rather, I'm not claiming that divinity exists independent of perception, of a way of looking, of soul. Just like beauty. So it refers to experience, and I'm certainly not claiming that divinity is something that exists independent of my perception, independent of certain ways of looking, of the way of looking, independent of soul. Now, if a person um, wants to say, ah, you, so it's basically an illusion, then you just said it's, it's, uh, it doesn't exist independent, it's an illusion, it's non-existent, it's just a fabrication. Again, this would be a, you know, silly on a number of counts, such a, such a statement, uh, because show me something that's not fabricated. Show me something that's independent of the way of looking. All things are. Bring that thing to me, show me, point to it. There is nothing that's not um, uh, not dependent on the way of looking, nothing that's not fabricated. And if a person was to say, uh, beauty is, you know, it's, non, it's a non-existent, it's an illusion, it's just a fabrication in the poor sense of the word, uh, would you really believe that? If someone said that, you tried to convince you there's no such thing as beauty. It is an illusion. Or if they said, um, beauty, uh, sorry, uh, we, okay, people believe, they, this person might say, people believe in beauty or they seek um, beauty uh, as a consolation. So people say that about divinity, don't they? We believe in divinity, we seek divinity as a consolation. It's possible that some people do that with regard to <coughs> divinity uh, and, and, or with regard to beauty. They either believe in it or seek some kind of experience as a consolation. But really, you know, again, d- divinity is so charged and uh, uh, it's become so problematic, but translate that to beauty. And so if someone said to you, you believe in beauty, or you seek beauty as a consolation, possible, maybe, at times, or some people at times, but really as a kind of psychological assessment of what's going on within our relationship with beauty, really? It's hardly, for me, it's hardly accurate, it's hardly comprehensive, let's say. It doesn't really uh, flush out what's going on for us there with an experience of beauty. It's not that we desperately create beauty to uh, console ourselves against the reality of a meaningless universe and of our f- the finitude of our existence. As much as we might seek beauty or create it, it finds us. As much as we might seek or create it, it finds us. We are struck by beauty, if you like. If we are only open, and open means more than heart, 
more than just heart, more than just the senses, open. It's a soul, open. There's something to recognize here. There's a mystery to beauty. It's always going to be bigger than the reasons why. The reasons why we create beautiful things. The reasons why beauty beauty is important to us. The reasons why we experience beauty. We make those reasons and beauty will transcend that. It will be more than that. Our whole relationship with beauty will always be more than that. Just as with divinity and the, what I mean, it's the experience of divinity and the conception of divinity. So I'm making a, 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 a parallel here. And what's more, it's certainly in the way that I would like to open up that uh, exploration of divinity and inclusion of that notion and that experience. Divinity, like beauty, is not outside of sense experience. So there is certainly a dimension of what... Uh, what we call a dimension or an aspect, if you like, of divinity, the transcendent, unfabricated, etc., that might be wholly transcendent of sense experience. Um, Sure. Um, But divinity, uh, like beauty, is not outside of sense experience in the way that I would like to open that up. So this is an analogy. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not um, saying beauty is God or God is beauty or anything like that. I'm not. I'm not equating the two. I'm making an analogy. If if divinity is a, just a baffling notion to you, and there's all kinds of reactions, think about and explore your relationship and your notion and your experience of beauty. And there's, I think, a lot of analogies there with the uh, experience and, and possible notions of divinity. I could use, um, actually, uh, love or mercy or intelligence um, rather than beauty. Uh, Because in mystical experience and mystical perceptions that are possible to open up, we can have experiences of love or mercy or intelligence or lots of other things pervading the cosmos, being present in the cosmos um, uh, throughout but those kind of experiences are less common than an experience of beauty in the cosmos, in the universe. Even if beauty is hard to define, most people uh, have an experience of beauty. So we're not, uh, actually it is a kind of mystical perception, we don't think of it as a mystical or a rare perception, a rare experience. <clears throat> I'd like to say more about the experience of divinity and the breadth and range of those kinds of experiences um, but I'm aware of time so, and I've talked about it recently elsewhere so I'll, I'll leave that for now here but just to say that when we are talking, when I'm talking about the experiences of divinity and, and that notion of divinity we're really talking about infinite folds infinite possibilities, infinite folds of the infinite if you like um, infinite aspects of divinity that can open up for us everywhere um, and uh, in everything. That every facet of our being and every facet of existence can be um, divinized or experienced as divine in infinite ways. There is, because of the Eros Psychologist dynamic, because of the expansion 
<coughs> of the soul making, of the movement of soul making, everything that involves and implies and galvanizes, there is um, the ongoing possibility of the creation and discovery of divinity everywhere, in everything, in every facet, and even the creation and discovery of facets that we haven't that we don't even yet perceive in things, in ourselves, in our being. And then those two will be divinized, these new facets, these unknown facets. <coughs> now sometimes of course people really don't like that word divinity or God because of all, all different reasons. Um, and so sometimes people, I, I might use the word Buddha nature and actually <coughs> could use them um, interchangeably as far as I'm concerned. Um, in Buddhism, Buddha nature has, uh, you know, there's a whole range of um, teachings, uh, divergent teachings. People disagree about it, people argue about it. A whole uh, range of ways that word and that concept of Buddha nature is used. <clears throat> so one, one of the ways it's used, it is, especially recently, it's just come to mean kind of like your nice qualities, your good qualities. So you might feel that you lack generosity or you lack compassion or you lack um, patience or, or whatever um, but actually these things are there in you um, just waiting to be unearthed so that we that teaching helps us in regard to self-judgment etc because we say actually you, it's your innate goodness so that's one way it's used um, some streams of the tradition use it in a second way um, related but in a second way um, <clears throat> Buddha nature just means your potential to be enlightened, to become a Buddha. The possibility of uh, you becoming a Buddha is your Buddha nature. Why is there that possibility? Just because the mind is impermanent and the factors of the mind are impermanent. So if you're um, you know, stingy and not generous, if you're judgmental, if you're impatient, these are just impermanent factors of mind. Because they're impermanent, um, they can they can go away and you can cultivate opposite qualities, generosity, compassion, patience, etc., etc. And in cultivating them, you grow towards uh, Buddhahood. <clears throat> There's another way, um, which I would prefer to talk about, or rather is what I mean when I talk about, mostly when I talk about Buddha nature, that's in the tradition. It really refers to it something much more um, mysterious, mystical, transcendent, etc. Uh, transcendent in some respects. Um, and it really refers to uh, the Buddha mind, the cosmic Buddha awareness, if you like. But even it's not even just an awareness. It's, it's a non-dual awareness. It is empty in itself, but it's inseparable from what it knows. And what does it know? It knows the world, the world of appearances, which are also empty, and it knows that they are empty. So it's a knowing of emptiness, and uh, the, the totality of both um, the knowing and what is experienced. So the awareness and the world. It's, if you like, the whole intersubjective field of that we call include included when we talk about subject and object. The whole field together. Um, it's the gnosis, the uh, ultimate knowing of a Buddha, the ultimate. Um, subject intersubjective field of a Buddha mind, but it's cosmic. Okay. And so that's more what I would like to infer uh, when you use the word Buddha nature. Buddha nature comprises in the Mahayana tradition 
dharmakaya uh, as one aspect or one dimension, if you like. In some <coughs> teachings, dharmakaya really just means kaya is body, and dharma is uh, is one one meaning of dharma is mental factor. So it's just the body, if you like, the the collection of the Buddha's mental factors of the Buddha's mental dharmas of these dharmas. Um, in the Prajna Paramitas Paramita Sutras, um, it 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 means much more than that. It's not just the collection of the Buddha's um, m- mental factors um, at that are possessed by a certain individual, Siddhartha Gautama or whoever. Um, it's actually referring much more to this non-dual, empty um, gnosis that's inseparable, subject and object awareness and world, that whole cosmic intersubjective field that knows the emptiness of things, is empty itself and includes both um, awareness and world, subject and object, all being empty. <coughs> Actually, Buddha nature also includes not just Dharmakaya, but also Sambhogakaya and Nimarnakaya. We don't have time to go into that. Um, but I've talked about this a little bit before, I think. If we don't restrict the meaning of those words and these kayas to just an individual, historical individual, or one possible individual there uh, in this finite form, their Buddha nature, or this person's Buddha nature, and and regard it more um, wider than that, more cosmically than that, then the Dharmakaya and the Sambhogakaya and the Nimarakaya really include then this cosmic, universal um, subject, if you like, the whole realm of imaginal perception, the imaginal realm, and the world of physical appearances or appearances that appear physical to us, whatever that means. Um, So all of that, you come to something uh, much more mystical, much more inclusive, and much less dualistic as well. Um, if in a, with a certain understanding of Buddha nature that I would like to uh, relate to the use of the word divine or God as well. How can we move towards that? What would support that kind of opening of the view, that kind of platform of a view, <coughs> actually in experience as well as in conception? You know, we know, uh, for example, just a little bit of reflection, um, that I know my body, your body, is actually, though it looks like a distinct thing, it's actually in constant sort of uh, permeable exchange physically with the material world, the air we breathe, the food we eat, what we drink, what we excrete, etc. There's permeability between my body and the world's body, if you like. As we go more into and allow more and support more the soul-making dynamic and the the, the um, igniting and the fire of eros psyche logos, um, we begin to be able to perceive and to sense, not just conceive, but to perceive and to sense, um, because uh, things that we perceive and sense become um, an erotic other, an erotic objects for us, then the whole eros psyche logos dynamic, as we've described, starts to, we start to perceive and sense those things, and the world of things, and everything, and every facet, and every fold, and every uh, dimension, that 
becomes uh, gains a kind of autonomy. In, we sense it as having a certain autonomy, a certain intelligence, a certain soul, psyche, etc. And also its own eros. This tree has a certain uh, comes alive as soul. It has soul. It is soul. It it also has eros. So not, psyche and eros and intelligence and all the rest of it and autonomy are not just in the human or animal minds. Actually, with the eros psyche logos dynamic expanding, deepening, widening, fertilizing, all that, that we start to sense ourselves and conceive ourselves um, in an insouled world, a world that has soul, that is soul. Um, An animate world, the word anima, animate actually refers to anima, has soul, uh, which is Latin for soul. Um, The world becomes animated, the world of things, of objects, of so-called inanimate objects becomes animated. The whole open field of being becomes the field of eros and soul and eroses and souls and psyches, plural. So psyche is not just in here. Soul is not just in here or in you somehow. Now well, we've already actually implied this by saying in the use of the word psyche, uh, we said yes, it means soul or my soul or your soul in the subjective chitta sense. But it also means in the eros psyche logos dynamic, it also means the totality of imaginal perception. We said that if you remember. In other words, the totality of objects and perceptions. So it's already implicit that psyche is not just in here, so to speak. And eros too. You know, I um, told you about eros always being with pothos and with a, the band of um, gods or demigods um, called the erotis. Well, another character, as well as eros and pothos in that little band that is, always goes together, is anteros. Anteros. A-N-T-E-R-O-S. Um, and this is r- responding or re- returning eros, the mirroring of eros. And, and what we see with our imaginal experience, whether it's an in- purely so-called intrapsychic um, image or an imaginal perception, uh, the deepening of the soul-making perception of something in the world, is that that thing, whatever it is, or that beloved other, start, we start to sense that they have eros for us. The eros is returned. It flows both ways. From us to them, from them to us. The world of things loves us. It has eros for us. It has soul. It is soul. Souls multiply, become more manifold. So in all this, we're going, we're collapsing, or if you like, going beyond the sort of um, um, typically now ingrained um, uh, assumption and perception of Cartesian dualism that dualism uh, that Descartes made between <coughs> mind and matter, res cogitans, res extensa. Uh, actually, uh, reading recently, quite interesting. He it really started with Galileo, Galilei, not not with Descartes. Um, uh, but that's interesting, anyway. So, um, but this this um, not so much collapse, but uh, opening out of that dualism, dissolving of that dualism, 
becomes not just an idea, but a lived and sensed, uh, lived sense, it's sensed, it's felt, it's experienced, as well as conceived. So this, that uh, movement happens, as said, just through um, soul-making and supporting soul-making and being interested in that and exploring it. Um, uh, and that expansion there through the through the whole eros psychologos dynamic, as we've been explaining, it will move to that place. And then that place will just keep uh, becoming more manifold, the senses of divinity, the perceptions, the experience, the dimensions, the facets, uh, creation, uh, being created and discovered, all of that. It may also be supported, and again I'm, I'm answering this question, how do we open up that center of the divine? What supports it? It's also ex- uh, can be supported, many people, through emptiness practices, de- really deepening. For some people they need to go through that route. So we see with uh, the way I would teach uh, emptiness and that whole line of exploration, we begin to realize through playing with ways of looking that, the, in the, let's say, the mind fabricates um, and through that, this thing or that thing, and this perception, that perception, this object, that object, is empty, is fabricated. And then we, we also see that this mind or this awareness too is not self, it's anatta. And we can play with that view and see what happens. And we recognize eventually that this mind, this awareness that fabricates, it too is empty in itself. It's not only not my, me or mine, it's also empty in itself. We see more than this in, in this whole opening. We see that time is empty. And because of all this, fabrication itself is empty. The whole duality between what is fabricated and what is unfabricated, what seems illusory in some sense and real in some sense, that collapses. All of it, including the mind, can be perceived as sacred, as divine. And we can say, yes. To a certain, or in a certain manner of speaking, at a certain relative truth, um, the mind fabricates. But the mind that fabricates is this divine mind. It's not mine. It's the, the the divine mind, which is not separate from the things and the world, because we've seen all that in uh, through the dependent origination, through the <coughs> understanding of emptiness. It's the divine mind that fabricates all perception so-called physical, so-called imaginal, so-called combination. And this view becomes, this way of looking becomes available. It's a possible view. We can move into that. So I can engage that deliberately, that view, that it is the divine mind um, fabricating, uh, the divine mind that's timeless, that's empty, that's uh, em- uh, beyond all that can be say about can be said about it. Uh, that divine mind is fabricating a world of perception, the world of things and objects and selves and others and all that. It's not separate from those fabrications, but it's that that's fabricated, not me, not mine. And as Catherine has emphasized, um, we, we, we could say mind, but we could also say the senses, or include within the word mind the senses. We tend to split these things, they're not really separate. The word, the Pali word, and uh, Sanskrit word, I think, as ayatana, the Pali is certainly uh, that, ayatana, 
<coughs> and and uh, uh, it, it gets translated sense ayatana's bases or organs, so ear, eye, etc., um, or agents, in other words, implying this active role that they have, that their, their extent, their reaches, their fields as well, is a perfectly valid um, uh, translation and is implied in the translation of ayatana. So that word ayatana, it encompasses much more than how we tend to divide those um, meanings up in English. If we say ear, we don't tend to think of the whole field of aural perception, or eye, we don't tend to think of the whole field of visual perception, but actually that's included in ayatana. Um, and so it includes the objects as well, it includes the objects of sense perception, the fields of sense perception, the, the, the activity of the agency, the way that it is actually active, participatory um, senses are active and participatory and also the, the you know the so-called physical organ or base again it's pointing to this ayatana points to me it points to this intersubjective realm uh, this non-dual um, sense if you like uh, that we can have um, uh, of, of the whole realm of experience um, so, through the view of um, emptiness, uh, if we go through the practices of emptiness, for some people, it's what it's what opens up um, the possibility of a certain view of Buddha nature, of divinity, um, and implicit in that is is a certain soul making, uh, a view of soul and the soul's participation, and it can form a basis um, of possible uh, possible. Possib- further ways of looking and conceptions, uh, a basis for the flexibility of that and being able to entertain because we've seen the emptiness of these things. And because of that, further soul-making, and as I said, further folds, further facets created, discovered, come on that basis of that sense of um, participating and being in this divine field, if you like, the world as divine, the the experiences of the sense and the senses as divine, ourselves, our minds, every fold, every facet of the being as divine. And that can be multiplied and deepened and enriched because of the Eros-Psychologos dynamic. Now, it may be that someone (coughs) is listening and thinks, yes, but is that real? Is that true? If you have this sense, um, I hope uh, I hope that it's obvious by now from everything we've said in previous retreats, etc., that we we have moved beyond. We have deconstructed naive notions of reality and truth. We are in the uh, the, the playing field, the realm uh, opened up by the middle way, neither existing nor not existing. Neither is nor is not, as the Buddha said, I teach. Uh, neither is nor is not. Uh, neither real nor unreal. The middle way that is a basis, uh, a result of emptiness practice, and if you like, a basis but also uh, a, a refinement or, or product of the refinement of imaginal practice. Is it real? Is it true? In a way, we get locked into very um, naive and philosophically naive and psychologically naive um, uh, notions of reality and truth. 
And what is the, what are we doing here? I'll say this again. I've said it before. What are we doing here? Is this whole exploration, whether it's of <coughs> eros and soul making, beauty, aesthetics, are we wanting to serve something called truth? I mean, it maybe that's partly. Uh, I, th- I think it is actually a, a part of it. But so often when people hear that word or reality, or, or whatever, or they just have some idea, we just have some idea of something that's singular and objective, existing independently of the way of looking. Is it that, that we're trying uh, this whole movement of practice in the service of reaching some singular, objective truth? Or is it soul-making? And that's a different intention. We need to really open up what we mean by truth. But we're, tr- we're in, for me, we're in the service of soul-making. We're interested in supporting that movement of soul-making. And in the movement of soul-making, there will be an expansion. It, 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 by definition, soul-making means an expansion of perception. An expansion into the perception of dimensionalities and, and divinity, divinities it, it, and Buddha nature and all that. Limitless creation, discovery, revelation of all that. And this is this is the movement of soul making. And this is what we want to serve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.